We need to stop asking permission from other specialists to do our job. We're experiencing the most disruptive time in the history of healthcare. With this podcast, I'm going to connect you with industry and CRNA thought leaders to help you thrive in these unprecedented times. I'm your host, Randy Moore, CEO of the AANA, and this is Moving the Needle. Today on the show, we have Dr. Drew Riddle. Uh, We're going to talk about a bunch of really interesting stuff, uh, including what the future of anesthesia looks like with clinical innovation, workforce development for nurse anesthetists, and where preoperative clearance is going and how it has to change for the future. Drew is an associate professor and director of clinical education at TCU School of Nurse Anesthesia. Go Horned Frogs. What is a horned frog And, and why would anybody make that their mascot? He's also the Region 7 Director on the ANA Board of Directors, which makes him one of my 11 bosses. That's fun. He's a co-chair of the Cochrane U.S. Network, vice chair of the APSF Scientific Evaluation Committee, and director of the Center for Translational Research. Drew maintains an active clinical practice in both the care team and independent model and has a passion for pharmacogenetics, yes, I pronounced that correctly, patient safety, and optimizing patient outcomes. Uh, Drew has a PhD and a DNP, which is interesting, and I'd uh, give him some uh, slack for that. And he's also a fellow in the American Academy of Nursing. Okay, Drew, thanks so much for joining us here on Moving the Needle. Before before we get started, I have a very important question for you. Sure thing. Uh, talk to me about the horned frog at TCU. Sure. What? what, what how, so a couple of years ago, I gave a commencement address at Webster, which was awesome, a lot of fun, and and, and their mascot's the Gorlock, ah. and and it's it's not even anything anything that's real. So I guess the question I ask is, have we got to the point in time where where we have to make up mascots or have ridiculous mascots because all the other ones have been chosen, or or how, how strong is the gor- is the horned frog mascot with with TCU? How's that work down there? Well, yeah, it's uh, th- first. Thanks for having me. I think uh, it's a great question to open up the podcast. And, um, <laughs> of course, and, yeah, this episode. Yeah, so the 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 horned frog. Yeah, TCU has been around since the 1800s. That's actually been the mascot since then. So clearly, right. we took a good one, and um, uh-huh. it's forced others to, you know, choose a different mascot. So. Yeah, the, the horn frog, it's indigenous to Texas. It's actually uh, um, uh, endangered at the moment. And when it gets really mm. angry, it um, it actually shoots what appears to be blood out of its eyes. So it it's, um, it's I don't think it's actually blood, but they really do it sort of a defense mechanism. And um, so when they get they get really excited at a football game, perhaps they'll just just spew blood everywhere out of their <laughs> eyeballs at people. Um, but yeah, I, yeah, it's a, it's, it's a real animal. It's a real thing. And um, they used to be everywhere. And now I don't know why, but for whatever reason, they're not as many of them anymore, but, um, yeah, blood out of the eyes. Just remember that we're, we're pretty fierce here at TCU. <laughs> well, thanks for joining us, everyone. That's all we had to talk about today. Uh, yeah. just, okay. Let's get that. Let's get down to business. So anytime I have a question about complicated stuff as it relates to anesthesia, pharmacogenetics or how to pronounce it, uh, and uh, the future, uh, where things are going with anesthesia. I, I call it my friend and colleague and sort of boss, uh, Dr. Drew Riddle. And, uh, and, and he always does a wonderful job of helping, uh, of explaining this in Randy-like terms. So I'm, I'm curious, where do you see the relationship between a- anesthesia outcomes 
and new and emerging and innovative things in the anesthesia and perioperative space. What are you seeing for, from your perspective coming down the road? You know, anesthesia has, um, I've been in practice just going on 20 years now, and we've seen a lot of, you know, changes, technology, new medications, new techniques over the years. And, and it's, it's absolutely fascinating to look at the landscape today and the accelerated rate of growth and in, in development in research development and technology and how that really is going to impact our, our outcomes for our patients. It, you know, genetics is sort of a, a, a passion of mine. I've done research in that field for quite some time. And um, I think there's, you know, maybe this is a bold statement, but I would, I would argue that within the next certainly decade, but I would, I would be even so bold as to say in the next five years that we're going to see per not, perhaps not every patient, but a majority of our patients that are going to be genetically tested for predicted drug responsiveness. And we will have those results as CRNAs prior to giving the first drop of anything, any medication, and it will really allow us to help predict how our patients, uh, how, how they're going to respond. Um, you know, I give, I give this scenario all the time of, you know, we, we have a patient, we give them what the textbook says should be the dose of drug. And, um, and some of them have had the, uh, uh, the decency to read the textbook and some don't, <laughs> right. They didn't, they didn't read, they don't know what, what the, what the, the experts say they should do. And so mm -hmm. we get this really delayed or exaggerated reaction, whether it's, you know, a longer onset time, a, a delayed clearance time, whatever it may be. So I think genetics is going to play a huge piece into really, really allowing us to personalize our anesthetic for every single patient based not just on their pathophysiology and the planned surgery, but, but really what is it genetically about that patient that makes them unique and different from the patient before perhaps the next patient. Now, the other aspect of this is artificial intelligence. I think, I think the use of AI to help us scrub the absolutely amazing amount of data that we are able to obtain in, in every anesthetic, whether it's from the physiologic monitor or the ventilator or, or what have you, um, and really interpret that with us as a clinician making the, the high level decisions, but, but giving us really inf interesting and insightful information for our, for our patients. So yeah, it's, it's an exciting time to be in healthcare. I think it's a really exciting time to be in anesthesia. It's interesting. I'm frequently asked the following question when I speak to uh, CRNAs, uh, whether it's state association or the ANA, or sometimes students, they'll ask me, uh, should we be concerned about the disruption of technology on the specialty? Meaning 10 years from now or 15 years from now, where we need fewer nurse anesthetists or anesthesiologists because of artificial intelligence, because of machine learning or all of these things. Now I have my answer. Now I want to see if I'm right. Drew, are, are you up at night worried about what artificial intelligence is going to do to the CRNA workforce? No, I, um, I've been really lucky that I haven't had to take call in over 10 years. So I don't get up at night anymore for really <laughs> any, any reason. No, but, um, you know, it's a great question. Interestingly, just, um, I, you know, it may have been earlier this week, actually, um, Sully, you know, Sullenberger, the, the, the pilot of the glider, you know, the, the aircraft turned glider that, that landed on the Hudson actually wrote a piece uh, related to this in aviation with a similar kind of question as, as aircraft become more and more automated, does that mean instead of two pilots, we need one, or mm -hmm. instead of uh, pilots with the training, the depth of training they currently have, can we, can we back that up? And, and his response to that was absolutely not. And my response to your question is exactly the same. Um, machine learning artificial intelligence, being able to, to um, assimilate massive amounts of data and make sense of that data in real time um, is probably beyond the, 
the bandwidth of the kind of the human brain, if you will. Um, that being said, all it is is an interpretation of the data, the clinician involvement and the clinician's ability to interpret those data and, and respond to those data is absolutely critical. And, and in, in my assessment will never be replaced by a machine. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so I believe if, you know, let's look at anesthesia practice, let's put on our, you know, crystal ball 20, 25, 30 years from now, um, there's still going to be a, an anesthesia provider sitting at the head of the bed in the operating room what it looks like, the data that we have, the way that data is interpreted by the, by, the, by the artificial intelligence, by the algorithms, and the way we use those data may be different. But the, the machine is never going to replace the human decision-making, the human mm-hmm. factor. And, and we've all been there in the OR even now where we have an aberrant reading from a physiologic monitor, let's say, which, which turns out really not to be um, an aberrant reading. In fact, that, that reading is, is absolutely correct um, or the opposite, right? It's, it's completely aberrant. And, and if I treated it, if I did something kind of in an automated way, I would probably harm the patient. Yeah. The surgeon's leaning on the blood pressure cuff. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, yeah. right? Yeah. yeah, or an EKG lead falls off, or they're bovying, and you know it, yeah. the the machine interprets that as you know how many times we've been sitting there, and you look up, and it and it looks like uh, you know VFib or VTAC, and and if a machine is making that decision, and and then you know heaven forbid actually intervening in that patient without the human um, discretion, then um, then we're in trouble. Yeah. Yeah, I think I, I think you're right, and, and that's my answer. Much much less uh, eloquently than you, but that's I, I think I, I'm excited about where this is going, and I think it's going to make our jobs even more fun, and 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 will be even more effective, uh, and and outcomes will be better. And you know, it's interesting. We were doing some strategic planning a few years back with folks who did strategic planning with the radiologists, the Radiology Association, and the radiologists were and maybe still are nervous <laughs> about, about, you know, artificial intelligence and that they said they did a strategic plan. And then a year later, they threw it in the garbage and they started all over again, because what, wow. what they were seeing was uh, the, the, you know, this true proliferation in a meaningful way uh, of, of artificial intelligence. And so I, I don't know, I don't know enough about where they're going, how they're positioning themselves, but I, I'm sure that they are having similar conversations that, that, that we're having around what, what does it mean for the specialty and how will the specialty have to change? It's going to come back fundamentally, I think, Randy, to, to how do we, how do we, how do we train, right? How do we train in the profession? How do we enter into the, into the calling of nurse anesthesia? And then for those of us in practice, um, still, when these kinds of changes come, how, how do we, how do we get each other up to speed, right? And, and to the level of, um, okay, well, here's this, you know, we've, we've all been in the OR, you, you know, how many times you walk in on a Monday morning, you look up and you think, huh, well, that's a new whatever, fill in the blank. It's sitting mm-hmm. on the anesthesia machine or it's sitting on my anesthesia card. I guess it's something I'm supposed to use, but I don't know anything about it. And so we're really, we're good about stepping up to the plate and being able to, to quickly um, adapt. And, and I think as, as CRNAs, we're well positioned to, to do so. We're, we're innovators, right? We're, we tend to be adopters, early adopters of innovation and technology. And, and it's exciting to me to think about what it's going to look like really perhaps in the not so distant future. Yeah, but tell me about when you when you were in that that state where we are routinely assessing preoperatively the patients and and tailoring our medications and our interventions based on their their genetic profile. How 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 would that look different? What will what will be different about that versus today? Yeah, I think um, I, I think it's going to look different in in really a very quite frankly a very subtle way that um, will become almost second nature to all of us, and so. 
you know, very few places are, are no longer, I guess very few places are not on electronic health record of some flavor and, and likely most places will be um, at, at some point in the future. And so the ability to overlay genetic information into the electronic health record where mm-hmm. I go to make a, a prescriptive decision, right? I, I elect to use midazolam, a, you know, a, a super fancy drug that hardly anyone, any of us use, but should you, should you choose to make that decision, right? So, so some anxiolysis for this patient before we head back to the OR and I'm going to use midazolam. Well, you know, I give my midazolam, I run to the OR and we go on about the, about our business. And so we tend in anesthesia to um, be different than other medical specialties, healthcare no. specialties, in that no. we we give uh, we give everything we're going to give, and then we go back and chart it after the fact, right? Mm-hmm. And um, I think I think the subtle difference is it's going to change that. I, I instead of going, well, gosh, I just gave all of these drugs. Let me go in and chart them. I, I put my plan into the system, whatever that looks like, right? Whatever the EHR application is on the front end. And so I, I say, you know, I plan on Randy, I'm going to use some midazolam to take care of his, his uh, out of control anxiety here in the, in the pre-op holding area. When I, when I put that in, I get a big red flag, a warning that says, well, based on this patient specific genetics, Midazolam may have an exaggeratedly long duration of action. And, and this happens to be at an ambulatory surgery center. And I expect this patient to leave an hour, an hour and a half after I start the procedure. And so maybe that, you know, couple milligrams of Versed that I gave in holding is not the best idea for that patient because of that situation, right? The machine can tell me what the predicted response is going to be. See, the clinician is the one that says, well, gosh, this is an outpatient thing. I need this patient out the door in an hour, an hour and a half from a throughput perspective. I'm not going to use midazolam or, you know, this guy's going to be going to the floor and he'll be sitting there all evening and all day tomorrow and all day the next day. And it's okay if he's a little sleepy afterwards. So maybe I am going to use it. That's where the clinician comes in. But on the, on the machine integration side of things, I I don't think it's going to be all that different than what we're doing now. It's going to be another data point to use, just like all the other data points we get, you know, preoperatively, we look at an EKG or we look at, you know, blood work or or what have you to to help inform us about, um, about our patients and how we're going to, how we're going to best take care of them, stratify risk, make a plan, et cetera. So I think it's just going to kind of be integrated seamlessly. I mean, I say seamlessly, right? Change is hard. It, It will be, I think a little bit of a learning curve, but, but really not not significantly different than what we're doing now, other than we're saying, Hey, what would happen if I gave this instead of I gave it, Oh crap. Now, what do I do? Mm. How do, how do I ungive this? <laughs> yeah, how do I, right. How do I ungive this? Yeah. I'm sure we've all been in the experience of, uh, you know, you, you give it and as it's traveling down the IV line, you you, you just, you, you just wish you could suck it back out, but it doesn't happen. Yeah. Right. It, there yeah, it is. There. It's in the patient and away <laughs> we go. Well, since we're talking about the future of the specialty in terms of te- technology, innovation. There's a really important part of this conversation that I'm really curious about your opinion, which is the workforce uh, workforce development, supply, demand, and CRNAs. And you have a, a really unique perspective because you're, you're a clinician, you're a researcher, and, and, and you're in academia too. You're, you're an educator. What, do you, what are your thoughts about that? Well, I think, um, I think workforce development is not a... Um, it's certainly not a sexy topic, right? Nobody, nobody sits around at a dinner party and says, you know what, let's open a bottle of wine and talk about workforce development for nurse anesthesia. Now you get a bunch of CRNAs in the room. They may want to talk about a cool case or a new regional block that somebody invented yesterday that we tried today. Um, but the, the reality is in, in my assessment, it's one of the, probably the top in the top five most pressing issues facing 
nurse anesthesia in the U.S. today, and that is ensuring that we have a balanced nurse anesthesia workforce. And, and what, what I mean by that are how many folks are leaving the profession because of retirement versus how many people are entering into the profession. And, and somewhere in between, we have people that enter and exit the profession for various reasons. But really, those are it's, it, it's not, uh, in, my, in my assessment, I guess, it's not a really complex uh, equation. It's how many people are leaving this year versus how many people are coming in this year. And, and it's no secret that um, we have an aging population. We have an increased demand for anesthesia services. Anyone who's been um, in the in the healthcare system in the last two or three years, COVID aside, has certainly seen an, an amazing um, demand for our services. Certainly outside the OR and and, and elsewhere. Um, and so, yeah, I see I see it as a as a concern. I I feel I feel very strongly that we have an incredibly robust talented group of young people ready to enter this profession. We are, we are very lucky at TCU where I teach that we have an, an incredible cohort of folks that apply every year. And it's always a very difficult decision to call that group down to those individuals to whom we're going to offer uh, admission to the program. And so, um, you know, I'm, I'm very um, optimistic that we are continuing to have a robust stream of individuals entering into nurse anesthesia education. Here's, here's where I think we have a little bit of work to do, and that is ensuring that the nurse anesthesia education prepares that workforce for what is going to be demanded of them upon graduation. I graduated 20 years ago. What I did as a CRNA 20 years ago is uh, somewhat different than what I'm doing as a CRNA today, or the expectations of what I did 20 years ago are a little different than what the expectations are today. And if educational institutions, clinical training, et cetera, can't keep up with, with the demands of our customers, and those are the healthcare systems that care for the patients that we're entrusted to provide anesthesia, for, for whom we're entrusted to provide anesthesia, uh, we're, we're in a world of hurt. Luckily, I see a lot of help of uh, educational, you know, universities and programs really pivoting to make sure they're meeting those those demands. Um, and so, my plea to the listeners would be: if you have an, an incredibly active, robust clinical opportunity, get in touch with your local nurse anesthesia program, the one that's in your area or the one from which you graduated, and let them know I've got a great opportunity for these CRNA learners to come in and, and, and learn how to uh, be a full practice, comprehensive, well-trained nurse anesthetist, because that's what we're going to, that's what we're going to need. Yeah. It's a, it's a really is a very important topic that I don't think it's a lot, uh, as much uh, as oxygen as it should. I mean, if you, if you zoomed out and you talked about this, just in healthcare, there's significant supply demand challenges today and likely in the future. And you come down to us at our specialty and we're talking about, well, not only are we wanting to grow the number of CRNAs who enter the workforce, but we want to increase their uh, the the rigor, uh, their uh, the quality of their clinical and didactic education, and that's not an easy thing to do. To scale uh, is programs, new programs are coming online, uh, existing programs are you know increasing the number of students they're admitting, or maybe creating satellite programs, and to do that in a way that preserves the quality of the graduate, and that we're every year we're, in, we're raising the bar. Uh, is something we've done pretty well, quite frankly, as, as a profession, uh, which is why we're so in demand right now. But there's a risk there. I agree with you. Like, you know, you know, supply-demand imbalance is, is okay until it gets to a certain number, and then it becomes not okay. 
uh, because the market will get creative. The market will go to other providers. Uh, we'll recognize other providers or we'll create other providers. Absolutely. I mean, we certainly have exam- exemplars of that across the U.S. And 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 so as, as a profession, I mean, I, my, my plea, and it really is a plea, um, is for, for every single, every single CRNA, every single clinician out there right now who has an, an awesome opportunity or thinks they have an awesome opportunity, get in touch with the program. That doesn't mean they're going to start sending you 400 CRNA learners the next day, right? And it may not work out that you can have learners for a, a number of reasons, but you, you know, you, you don't get, don't assume the answer is no, or don't assume, well, gosh, I, I you know, I'm only doing X, Y, Z, uh, because that may be the, the little piece of the puzzle that's missing from that local CRNA program in your area. Right. And so, well, you're only doing X, Y, Z, but that's the, that's the, the golden nugget. That's the end of our program mm. that we need to plug someone into that, that, that works out perfectly. Um, and so, yeah, you know, we, we can put bunches of people in a classroom and, and talk to them about how, you know, propofol works and how uh, we should position a patient prone on the table. Uh, but, but the reality where the rubber hits the road is excellent, excellent clinical experience while they're in, while they're in school. And, um, and we have excellent clinical sites out there. Don't get me wrong. I'm not sort of implying that we don't, we don't have awesome clinical training. I believe, I believe for the most part we do, but, but we need more because the demand is going to, uh, the, the market, like, as you said, is going to demand that we, that we increase output without yeah. sacrificing quality, right there. That's the, that's the key. Yeah, and I would say just to maybe pile on there just for a second is it's not uncommon when I speak to state associations and uh, and and I'll have questions from folks like, hey, yeah, I want to give, I, I want to contribute, I want to, I want to do my fair share, but right now it's not the right time for me to to run for a board position or to to run for a committee or to move into a formal leadership position within a facility. And, and one of the things that they can do if they're working in an environment where students would benefit from that, that that's that's plenty, right? I mean, that Absolutely. is plenty, you know. Yeah, you know, serving as a mentor, serving as a as a clinical instructor, or having your site as a as a site for clinical instruction of nurse anesthesia residents, that's a that, that's a huge contribution to the future of this profession. It 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 absolutely is. And and having having served in all of those capacities that you just that you just listed, I'd say um by and large, without a question, although probably the most challenging, but the most rewarding is uh, are those days where I feel like I've contributed a little bit to the the next CRNA, you know, the person who's going to be uh, the resident who's finishing their their training here in the next few months, going to go sit for boards, and and you know, will be will be our colleague, and and I had a little a little part uh, part to play in that. Yeah. Well, it's interesting when we when we were uh, we sent out a little sheet and we asked the, our our podcast podcast guests some topics they'd like to discuss. Uh, you you put a topic out here that's intriguing, and I, I want to dig into this, which is uh, preoperative clearance. And why the language needs to change, man. What's what's that all about? Okay, here, here's here's the thing. I'm gonna sound like I'm I'm preaching here for a minute, and I'm sorry, but we need to stop asking permission from other specialists to do our job. Hmm. We do not need permission to provide an anesthetic. What we need is the input from that specialist to answer a simple question. And that is, is this patient's fill in the blank condition optimized? Could there be something else done to further optimize this patient? So let's take the the little old lady who is rather, rather sedentary, sits at home, lives alone. She comes in, she has a history of congestive heart failure, perhaps is intermittently over the last few 
years, been in and out of her uh, primary care office for bouts of exacerbation of CHF. She comes in and she just doesn't look great today, right? She's being seen in my pre-op clinic. I'm going to be taking care of her next week. And she just, she ain't quite right. You know, I listen to her. She's got some bibasal arouse. It's nothing. She's not in fulminant distress, but it's pretty obvious to me that her heart failure is not as good as it could be. And so I send her back to her primary care provider or perhaps to her cardiologist. And the question does not need to be clear her for anesthesia, right? Mm -hmm. The question is, is Mrs. Jones's heart failure as optimized as it can be? And the answer may be yes. Surprisingly, this is as good as she could possibly be. Or the answer could be actually no. We need to diurese her. We need to change her medication regimen, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But at the end of the day, you and I, as the CRNA, are the ones making the decision as to whether this patient is an appropriate candidate for our anesthetic. We are the ones clearing the patient. I unlock the brakes, put my mask and gloves on, and start pushing that patient down the hall in the stretcher to go to the OR. Not the cardiologist, not the internal medicine folks, not the family practice doc. And so my, my plead would be to stop using the language of clearance, but rather use the language of optimization. Is this patient optimized? And then I use those data combined with my interview of the patient, my understanding and an inherent unique expertise in anesthesia to decide if this patient is cleared for the anesthetic, right? Because um, we've all seen those notes that are ever so helpful from the cardiologist that says things like avoid hypoxemia. I mean, thank goodness, because my plan actually was to give this patient a, a hypoxemic mixture of gas so that, you know, they don't move during surgery. I mean, it's, it's absurd, but the reality is we, we really, really need to stop asking permission, but the language has become clearance, 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 oh, yeah. clearance, you know, it, it, that, that, that's not what we're asking for. We're, we're asking for risk stratification and optimization. We incorporate that into talking to our patients and saying, Ms. Smith, here's the thing. Your heart failure is not well controlled, but your, your folks, your, your doctors seem to think that this is as good as it's going to get, but it increases your risk. And we lay that out for the patient. We incorporate what the anesthesia is going to do or not do to make that better or worse. And we, and we get the patient's consent to either do the anesthetic or not. Um, but this, this notion that somehow someone else who's not even in the hospital that day is clearing the patient for, for anesthesia is um, to me, just absurd. Yeah. I have to wonder how much of that is folks thinking they're getting a get out of jail free card, meaning that uh, if something untoward would happen during the perioperative experience and someone, let's say that that little old lady had a cardiac event. Yeah. You say, oh, look here. It says right here, cleared for surgery right. <laughs> by, by the cardiologist. I'm not saying that that's, that's logical uh, or, or even a, an, an accurate assessment, but I have to wonder how much of that is driving that. Well, let's, let's, let's have cardiology clear. Sure. Yeah. You know, I mean, uh, risk mitigation, right? We're trying to mitigate our risk, but the, the reality is, and I'm not an attorney and, and certainly, you know, don't, don't claim to understand the nuances, but at the end of the day, um, I, I can't imagine sitting in a courtroom um, when, when, a, when a, the plaintiff's attorney is, is questioning me about things and, you know, well, well, Drew, who, who administered the propofol to this patient? Well, that, that's me. Okay, so the cardiologist who cleared her was not in the room with you? Well, no, sir, no, it was just me. Okay, all right, well, then we're done, right? Yeah. Uh -huh. I mean, it, it, 
the, the inherent risk is, is what the risk is. It's our job to stratify that risk, mitigate it to the extent possible, and, and then inform our patients that we've done everything we can to reduce the risk. And we're going to take all of these precautions, maneuvers, et cetera, intraoperatively and postoperatively to, to attempt to uh, keep your risk as low as possible. But the risk exists, albeit luckily for us, incredibly low, right? We have, we have excellent outcomes. Um, and the number one driver of poor post-op outcomes, as, as we all know, is patient comorbidities, right? It's mm-hmm. not the anesthesia technique per se, or the surgical technique. It's what does the patient show up with? What baggage is that? Stop asking permission to do your job, do your job, get information that you use to inform the decisions that you make on doing your job. Yeah, that's great. That's fascinating. Thanks. It's a lot of a soapbox. Sorry. I didn't, I didn't know. I could see the passion. It's it's, passionate. No, you're not angry. You're passionate. Okay. (laughs) We'll call it. Let me ask you a question before I let you go. Uh, What's something that you've changed your mind on? Yeah. Nurse anesthesia education in, uh, in my mind, it had to be the way I did it, which was sitting in a classroom for hours on end, having someone stand up there and talk to me. And I guess I learned enough because I got out of school and I passed the boards and I, you know, I think I've had a a reasonably successful clinical career, but uh, that's not the only way people learn. In fact, it's not necessarily close to the best way that people learn. And um, I've been in education going on 10 years now in a full-time capacity along with my clinical practice. And it is abundantly clear to me that sitting in a classroom, listening to someone like myself talk to you for hours and hours on end is not the best way to deliver uh, to deliver education to high, high achieving adults. And that's mm. who we ideally have sitting in our classroom. And so, yeah, I've changed, I've changed my mind. It, the, the notion that you have to be in a classroom all day, every day to learn our skill and craft and trade is, uh, is not the case anymore. Now, I'm curious, how much of this this of is related to COVID or did you have your mind changed before COVID? You know, I had my, I was on the bubble, I suppose, pre COVID, right. Uh-huh. I, you know, I'll, I'll give it a try. I'll dip my toe in the water. And um, you know, when you're, when you're mandated to change some things, you, you just change them, right. You don't have a, you don't have a choice. And so um, COVID really, to me, served sort of as the springboard to say, well, I've been, I've been attempting to do some of these pedagogical changes in the way I approach nurse anesthesia education and adult education in general. And now, um, well, I don't have a choice but to do them. And uh, what, what I've seen as, we, uh, as I've had to make those changes um, is that the outcomes are as good, if not better than they used to be, and that our student satisfaction with the process is better than it has mm. been in the past. And so um, those are anecdotal data. I don't have a, a formal study yet. I think they're going to probably be coming. But, um, but this notion that we have to gather and sit in a classroom for hours and hours and hours, days after day after day uh, to learn how propofol works or whatever is, is um, I, I think that's kind of uh, old school, you know? I think that's, again, example number 673 of how crisis causes us to think about things very differently and how it accelerates transformation. You know, I I suspect that that was moving to some degree before COVID in many different ways, not just in nurse anesthesia education, but now, you know, you just read, just go right now and search articles about uh, what the future of higher education looks like uh, in a post COVID world. All this stuff I think was moving before COVID-19, but I think there's a lot of people like you who've had their minds firmly changed. Uh, And, you know, COVID-19, COVID is an absolute 
tragedy, it's a disaster, but there's going to be a lot of innovation and a lot of good change because of it too. Yeah, I completely agree. Thanks so much for, for joining us, Drew. I really enjoyed our conversation. Yeah, I did as well. Thanks, Randy. Appreciate the invitation. Thank you so much for joining us, Drew. That was a lot of fun. And hey, uh, listeners, thanks for listening. And if you like what you're hearing here at Move the Needle or Moving the Needle, uh, please, please tell your friends and your colleagues. Until the next time, take care of yourselves.